Hello, and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Ollie Hammett. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today, we hear from Jeff Norton, founder of newly launched Prodco Dominion of Drama, and John Smithson, creative director of the UK's Arrow Pictures. Jeff Norton's company, Awesome Media, was left adrift last February when its parent company, Q Media Group, collapsed. Norton has now founded a new Prodco, Dominion of Drama. He spoke to C21 about setting up his new company during a pandemic, the lessons he's taking forward from Awesome Media, and why creative is the most important driver of commerce. So I set up Dominion of Drama uh, ill-advisedly during the pandemic last year uh, in 2020. And I suppose in a way, I set it up out of necessity. As you may or may not know, I was in a deal with Q Media Group, which came to an abrupt end uh, when they imploded rather spectacularly. And I needed just to get on with life. Um, so I set up Dominion of Drama really to do two things. Um, the first is find IP and source intellectual property that I thought I could bring in and add value to. And the second thing is to be a vehicle for my own writing and, and my own creative projects that I instigate. So how important is intellectual property to what you're doing with the new company? I think IP for me it's 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 critical. Um, I, I've I've worked almost exclusively in my career in entertainment at the intersection of book and screen. So my very first foray into this crazy world that we're in uh, was via a book. The first thing I ever did is I I, I mean I did all sorts of internships and and development jobs and and whatnot in Hollywood. But my very first sort of foray seriously was I optioned the rights to the a book series called Choose Your Own Adventure. And if you remember, Choose Your Own Adventure is these book series that were interactive in nature. You'd read a few pages and then you got literally got to choose how the story unfolded. They call them branching narratives. And, and I sort of never looked back. And I think for me, IP is critical, or I believe IP is very, very important for two reasons. And, and one is creative and the second is commercial. I think the creative reason for me is that so much of the creative heavy lifting is already done. Um, the characters are fully formed. Uh, the story obviously is generally there. Uh, and then the third part of that that often goes um, unnoticed is what I call world building. And then commercially, I find it's never been more important. I think these days, particularly in television, there's been a kind of arms race in terms of scale, budget, packaging, talent, that nobody really wants to take a risk. And one of the ways early on in the development process that you can try and de-risk a project is by saying, well, it's based on IP. And what that telegraphs to the buyer or the financier is that somebody else in the entertainment ecosystem has actually spent money. They've taken a risk first. And I liken it to a pool party, right? Nobody wants to be in the pool first. And so if somebody else has already taken that initial commercial risk on the piece of IP, it just gives everybody comfort that there's something there. Dominion of drama would suggest a leaning towards a certain type of uh, genre. What's the thinking behind that and why drama? Well, I think for me, I, I know scripted. I I've never done unscripted. I've produced lots of scripted and I've been a development executive for scripted as well. And so it's just a world that I know. I think for me, I, I, I lean into scripted for adults, but I've also got a deep background in kids as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm able to do, and in fact, we're developing anything from preschool on up to prime time, but 100% scripted. 
I think there's the conscious decision is to have a what I call a balanced portfolio. Um, so I, I don't ever try and outsmart the market. I just simply follow great ideas well executed. And so what I try and do is I think the only the only time I try and be clever is to think, okay, I'm not arrogant enough to say that's the one that's going to be the hit because as everybody knows, nobody knows. And so I suppose what I try and do is I try and put a few seeds in the ground over here on say the younger skewing things, uh, a few seeds in the ground on young adult, a few seeds on the ground on genre, a few seeds in the ground of uh, say contemporary or crime. Um, and I nurture them and I water them and I fertilize the soil. Um, and then with the right people and the right packaging, you hope that you get something to harvest. And I think for me, I'm inspired by stories and characters and, and those stories and characters could be uh, teenagers having their firsts, or it could be something that's heavily genre led uh, that's strictly for adults. Um, so I think I really get I really get excited by the creative and then the business strategy follows the creative. How does creative feed commerce? Are there any kind of issues between that? I think there's two issues I think sometimes. One is um, the entertainment business is a bit like fashion, right? Things come in and out of fashion. So if you have a story you want to tell that's not in fashion, you may have to keep it in a desk drawer, right? Equally, uh, there may be something you've got in a desk drawer that all of a sudden is in fashion. Um, so one of the things you hear from broadcasters a lot is that they're really not interested in period pieces. And yet sometimes they'll still commission period as, and it resonates with the audience. As I said earlier, I never try and be led by the market, but I do try and be responsive and having multiple projects in development, having, and I think I've got a really great slate. Dominion, I'd say, has got one of the most exciting drama slates in the business. And, and what that buys us is it buys the opportunity to have a conversation. And so even if, let's say, I've got two period pieces that aren't in vogue right now, well, then I can have a conversation about a, a modern crime thriller. Um, I'll, I'll give you a, a small example. So I bought the, the rights to a book, fantastic author called Caroline Mitchell, New York Times bestselling author. She was a detective uh, before becoming an author. And in fact, you guys uh, broke the story, I believe, at C21. Um, and she's written a series of books about a young millennial detective, uh, detective inspector called Amy Winter, and they are gripping reads. Um, and in the first book, certainly, not only is it very female point of view, it's really a two-hander between her and her mother. That's not right for me to write. Um, so we've brought on a fantastic writer called Susan Everett, who's just come off delivering a couple of episodes of Silent Witness. And then we've packaged around that. We've got a distributor called Rainmaker. I've got a co-production partner in, in Zoe Rosh's Ruby Rock um, Pictures. Uh, I've got another co-production partner in with, with Sarah Curran's Tricycle Media. So we've sort of built a kind of Avengers assemble of really good people around the IP. And that's a little bit what I mean that the the IP and the creative comes first, and then you figure out, okay, how are we going to bring this to market? How are we going to get it financed? And who are the people that need to be on the team to actually execute this with excellence? And so that's the way I tend to think about things. Um, if you focus on the creative first, chances are the commerce can follow. You mentioned obviously collaborating with different distributors there and having a variety of partners. How important is collaboration to the success of Dominion? You know, I think for me, it's everything. Um, I, I remember a couple of years ago, and I don't know if you were in the audience there, but um, Bob Backish, who now runs all of Viacom CBS, he came through London. It was 2018. 
and it was either a C21 or an RTS. And forgive me, I can't remember which, uh, which seminar it was. And he coined this phrase that I'd never heard before, and he called it virtual scale. And, and he basically said that if you collaborate with partners, through partnership, you can get the benefit of scale, but without the costs, right? Without deploying the capital. And as somebody, quite frankly, who started out last year completely bootstrapping a new entity, I was very interested in scale, but I was not blessed with financing, right? You know, I wasn't backed by a big distributor or, you know, part of a, a, a big group. And so I thought, well, what I can do, the one thing I can do is I can, my buy-in chips are either the creative that I can generate or the IP that I'm able to wrap my arms around, and then I'll collaborate with others. So Dominion of Drama isn't a production company per se. You know, we're not trying to be the producer of record, the physical production company. There are lots of great production companies that have that overhead and have got that capacity. What we're trying to do at Dominion is be a bit like a virtual studio in that virtual scale perspective. So take a page out of that Bob Backish book and think, okay, how do we create more great shows than would be possible on our own by finding the right partners at the right time on the right projects. There's obviously the big global SVODs, and I'm having conversations with all of them on a fairly regular basis. The second is the UK-based PSBs, um, whom I think are very good at what they do. And I have to say, I'm worried I'm worried about them right now. I think there's a political climate in this country that the knives are out, and we can talk about that, I'm sure, at some point. Um, and then the third are there's regional broadcasters or SVODs, regional players. And I actually think those are the ones that are sometimes overlooked, and those are the ones where there's really germane opportunity for co-production and collaboration, because often some of those players don't necessarily have the budgets to be able to pay full freight for the type of scripted programming that they want to delight and surprise their audiences. And so if I can play a role in partnering them up on a piece of creative with another regional player, then everybody wins. And I think we're going to see more and more of that in the future. Another question I have for you is about the events of last year. I'm interested in what, what lessons you've taken forward from uh, your time with Awesome and how you're applying them to Dominion. A lot of people have been quick to throw stones at Q Media in terms of that it was doomed from the start. I actually don't believe that. I think the model that they were trying to set up is a good model, right? Have disparate production assets all firing on their own cylinders and with some central chassis of distribution. I mean, that's all three media, isn't it? It's, um, it's Lionsgate, uh, it's E1. It's a pretty tried and tested model. And interestingly, I'm actually aware of, there's a couple of, of, of roll-ups in, in the off um, out there in the ether right now that are looking to try and, I wouldn't say replicate, but sort of you know, replicate the success of all three. And I think for a reason, because it's a good model. The second thing is you know, where Q Media ultimately fell over is they just, they, they didn't have the money. Um, and I think for me, one of my lessons, and I flippantly said, take your money up front, is you know, I'm generally a pretty trusting person. And I think there's a level of naivete that perhaps I went into that situation with that I've learned. I've earned every single one of my gray hairs. You know, I'm able to move a lot faster now simply because I just know a lot more. And, I, and my network is much, much deeper and richer. 
Um, I've also been able to identify the types of people and the types of companies that I want to be in the trenches with. And so I've developed a shorthand, right? You know, it takes a village to make TV. And so you want to be working with people who've got the same value structures and value systems that you do. And I think that's something I've been able to identify. You know, life is just too short. And I'm not saying that there was, you know, bad people in the Q days at all, but life is, there are, they do exist in our business and life's just too short to work with them. And I've, I'm now, I believe, able to find, okay, who are, who are the good people that just want to make great projects? I think the other thing that I'm, I'm really interested in is always keeping the end goal in mind, always keeping the focus on serving and delighting the audience, and that the broadcasters or the commissioners or the buyers are part of that process, but they're not the end game. Um, I think a lot of producers, and I've met a lot of them, that are solely focused on getting the commission and getting the thing in front of the buyer that they lose sight of the audience. And sometimes that shows in the end result. And I think if there's one thing with Dominion I'm, I want to make sure that I'm doing is always begin with the audience in mind. Well, I mean, that must come from your experience as a, as a creative, because you've said how that comes first and foremost. You obviously want something that the audience is going to enjoy mainly before, like you said, before necessarily worrying about the commerce. I, I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, certainly, you know, my, my experience being an author is there's a real purity between the connection of the words on the page and the reader. Because when you're an author, when you write a book, that is the product, right? There's, there's no adaptation, there's no animation, there's no high-end director that makes it look amazing. All the reader is buying are your words. And so I'm a big believer in making sure, bed down that creative to the very best place it possibly can be. Because in the book world, that's, that's all you've got, right? Now, obviously in, in television and, and certainly in film, you can add in lots of whiz-bang elements along the way. You can dazzle the audience with a great actor or a great actress, the direction, uh, visual effects, all that kind of stuff. But in the book world, you've got nowhere to hide, right? It's literally black ink on a white page. And if it works, then you elicit an emotional response. And if it doesn't work, you know, people, people, people don't buy more of your books. Um, and so I think from that perspective, I've, I've got that kind of just seared into my ethos. How do you expect the TV industry to change over the next few years? Gosh, crystal ball. If I had one, I think if I had a crystal ball, my stock portfolio would be a lot better. Um, but I think there's a few things that are going on in, in our industry. I think we've seen consolidation, especially this past week. Um, I think we'll see more consolidation. Um, I think we'll also see more vertical integration. So we're going to see certain players hoarding onto their content, which is both a threat and an opportunity, right? It's a, it's a threat if they don't want to buy yours. It's also an opportunity if they've previously had output deals with other buyers and other platforms who now all of a sudden are being starved of that content. And so as content creators, the creative community can step in and, and, and service that. And that's why I mentioned some of those regional, those regional players, because the regional players won't have the global infrastructure. I think the other thing that I'm seeing a little bit of, and, and I'm worried about, if I'm honest, is I look at what happened in the feature film business over the last, let's call it 20 or 30 years. And I'm worried that some of that may come to television. And what I mean by that is, I think TV drama, you know, 
people have talked about the golden age of drama. And I think one of the things that we've done exceptionally well is be able to provide well-crafted stories for thinking adults, right? And that's something that Hollywood film used to do in the 70s, right? All the, all the films I studied in the film school, um, that's where those stories came from. And then the blockbuster came, right? And when the blockbuster came, people saw that you could have outsized returns and the budgets went up and up and up. And when the budgets go up, the profile to risk, right? The risk appetite goes down. And so you see, all right, it's superhero movies, it's known IP, um, it's let's make movies for 13-year-old boys instead of 43-year-old thinking adults. And so you get Transformers. Um, by the way, I love Transformers, but that's, that's not all I want to watch. Um, and I think there is a danger of, dare I say, the transformerification of television. And we're seeing that now, right? We're seeing big mega budget television productions decide that the only way that they're going to move forward is if they're based on stuff. And I think that's the darker side of the gold rush towards IP. I'm hoping if I'm being optimistic, I'm hoping that the, the golden age will continue to flourish because people want to tell great, nuanced, interesting character-led stories and not that we're going to end up only with uh, you know, people in lycra and capes and toy adaptations on dramatic television. It's, you, must, you must kind of have a foot in both camps, obviously, as somebody who, who loves to work with IP, but also a creative... Um, you know, that, that makes your own stuff to, um, well, yeah, I guess you must feel kind of conflicted about that situation. Yeah, I think I feel conflicted and excited at the same time. You know, I think, you know, one of the things that's so great about our business is how varied it is. Um, and, and I give the SVODs their due. I think one of the things that, that particularly Netflix and, and Disney Plus to an extent, but really Netflix has shown us is that you can have global niches, Right. So I think in times gone by, it's very difficult to try and get a show off the ground that doesn't have broad appeal, hence the name broadcaster. Right. Whereas if your platform is global, you can afford to have something that only appeals to a very, very small sliver of the population because there's almost 8 billion people on the planet. So you can, you can appeal to a huge audience by simply getting a tiny, tiny percentage of every market around the world. And I think actually that's very exciting and that's opened up a whole world of storytelling. I mean, who would have thought 15 years ago, people would be talking about Spanish language drama or uh, interesting uh, sci-fi quirky metaphysical drama that's in the German language. Um, you know, I remember, you know, being in high school, if I wanted to see anything outside of the norm, I'd have to drive about, you know, 20 or 30 kilometers to the only independent cinema in the region. Uh, I grew up in, I grew up in Canada. So it was in Hamilton, Ontario, um, to see something with subtitles. You would never have subtitles on television. And today I think Netflix has trained the audience to expect things that are different and unique. And I think also specific, right? I think we love seeing things that are specific to location and not necessarily made to look like, oh, it's just generic middle America or it's a city pretending to be New York. I think it's incredibly exciting. Jeff Norton there speaking to me, Ollie Hammett. 
Next up is John Smithson, creative director of the UK's Arrow Pictures. Arrow has three upcoming documentaries, all being released by different methods. One as a box set on Sky, one via cinematic release, and one as an international co-production with several foreign commissioners. Smithson spoke to C21 about the merits of each strategy, as well as ongoing trends in the factual sector. It's all about the power of the story, but above all, it's about how a story best works. What is the best way of telling that story? So I love doing single one hour, 90 minute, two hour feature doc, theatrical doc, one big story, but it's really got to work. It exists once. Uh, It may exist not much at the moment, may exist in the theatres exist on a streamer, exist um, on TV or various other sort of other platforms. But you can go that route. And I'm increasingly interested if you can go longer. There's some stories where you can do a mini series where it works better. You've got a cliffhanger. You've got a reason to come back again for the second episode or the third or more. Um, so, um, and often that's what the market wants. And, and obviously it's around for a longer time. It's easy to build word of mouth if something is running for one, two, three, four, six episodes or more. But it's all about what is the right thing for the story. And you sort of know at the beginning, if it's a big close-up story that makes bigger points, somehow that for me works better as a feature doc. But if it's a sort of bigger look at type thing, it may well have the legs to last three, four, six hours and get more into sort of box set territory. So you sort of know each time. And obviously, you've got to go where you can finance it. It's sort of horses for courses. I mean, what's great about this is there's real opportunity. You know, once upon a time, theatrical documentaries were literally that. They were aimed for movie theatres, for cinemas. The idea was to get into cinemas, get into festivals, build up word of mouth, and then do um, and then do a theatrical run. And then, yeah, before the streamers, they would go to DVD and then to television. Um, streamers changes it in two big ways. One, they are looking to do direct for their streaming service, a project that you can still call a feature doc. The words are sort of merged and together, feature doc, theatrical documentary. It might have a limited sort of screening, often for awards purposes. It may have a limited theatrical run to enable you to qualify in awards, but it exists primarily on the streaming service. But obviously it works well there. There's no adverts. It feels like you're watching um, a movie. So that really opens up the market for these projects now, which is why I'm very optimistic that this is not a dying genre, but in fact, uh, one that's very much alive. And you can still do them um, because everyone, you know, there's a global appetite if the story is right. And you can still do them by putting together a bunch of partners um, internationally. So we're doing a feature documentary called Generation 9-11 for the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which is later in a few months' time. It's a global story. You can't get much more global as a news event than 9-11. So it was done with an American broadcaster and then a British broadcaster 
PBS and then Channel 4, and then Arte that covers France and Germany. And it's worked really well as a collaborative process between those three. And then it will sell to other countries around the world as well. So it's financed um, um, with those partners. And because they're all in sort of equally, it gives you the wherewithal to do a film with all the aspirations of production value and quality, cinematic quality that you would do um, with a pure theatrical documentary. So that's another example of how you can put these together. Uh, so, it, you know, for me, it's really encouraging uh, that you have those three routes, pure theatrical, streamer and, and TV. And of course, it's not as clean as that because um, often you can have a theatrical window, then a streaming window, then a linear window. So it all merges together as well. And then in another way, there's an option because you have the purity of doing a single feature doc, which is normally 90 minutes to two hours long. But if the story is right, you might want to go longer. You, you might want to do a mini series. You might want to do a sort of box set, which is more, you know, can often be four or six hours. So it's all about finding the right format, finding the finance and the best thing that enables you to, uh, to tell your story in the best possible way. That's, that's the challenge. Just going back to the cinematic angle, for, uh, the, sorry, the theatrical release for a second. Um, I'm wondering, you know, if you have, if you have a series, um, if you have success with streaming platforms anyway, you know, you have, uh, you have, um, sorry, you have feature documentaries like Sherpa on Netflix already. Uh, and obviously in the last year, nobody's been going to cinemas. Um, do you think that's still a relevant path for a thing? So my yeah, think, question is, why wouldn't you just go straight to a streaming platform? Well, I think it's good to have a choice. And, um, and, and there still is a very real appetite, particularly as no one has actually, you know, been in, you know, I'm talking today when cinemas are finally, you can go to the a cinema. Um, it's, uh, people still love, making feature docs for us the, the proper cinematic release. There's nothing better than a doc on a big screen with all the state-of-the-art sound where an audience is watching it. And, you know, and occasionally you're there for screenings and so on, and you can really judge for real. It's like a giant focus group, how the audience is reacting to the film, whereas obviously on a streamer or on, on linear TV, it's out there and whilst you may gauge feedback by social media, by reviews and so on, there's still something really, really nice about, and also getting a documentary that people actually want to go and see and pay their 10 or 15 quid or whatever it is, such a long time for, since they went to the cinema, whatever it is now. Um, and so it's a really viable route and it's an exciting route and it's a challenging route. And there are still... Um, uh, film companies, sales companies, sales agents, distribution companies who are directly interested in that market. So um, I don't think it's being killed off by lockdown. I think there'll be a pent up demand and it will pick up just as you imagine with mainstream features as well. People want to go out to the cinema, you know, and they want to get out. 
and and that shared viewing experience. So it, I, hopefully it will reinvigorate the market. But how fantastic that during the misery of cinemas being shut, the streamers were still a proper market for those sort of projects, and as as was the the TV route as well. So um, that's why it's it's a really really good thing that you have so many routes now and that they are they can all lock together or they can work separately yeah, that is very interesting and um the generation 911 obviously being a big international co-production with a lot of uh a lot of people what's the expression a lot of people with their hat in the ring i guess you could say um how did you how did you manage to sort of still be able to make something that you uh, Arrow Pictures felt felt that was good. Uh, yes, that's a good question. They they um, it works both ways. Uh, they know us and trust us, and the team we have uh, making that film. You know, very good, talented director. They know my background with a number of nine eleven films that have received recognition. So there's a trust going one way, and we've worked you know, I've been doing co-production a long time and we've worked very hard and almost working with all three partners simultaneously to communicate with them uh, regular calls um, about how the project is evolving, you know, actively involving them when we chose our characters um, because obviously I mentioned we had 108 potential contributors uh, and we actively researched about 50 or seven, uh, 60 of, of them. But working with them in terms of selecting casting, as it were, the sort of six or seven people that will be in the film, working on the sort of editorial approach and so on. So it's getting everyone on the same page. Because obviously a project like that, there's a very hard deadline. You don't, a programme for the 20th anniversary of 9-11 needs to be ready and uh, to be delivered. By then, so you can't keep editing, and, and so it's about getting everyone working um, together. But it's win-win because you know they are all getting a film, we hope, of the highest quality, and and then you aggregate the budget. Uh, but they're uh, they're all getting it for their for their share. So it's it's a real, um, and you know it's a, it's I can't claim it's a radical new route because people have been doing that sort of thing before, but it. If you can get it to work well, it's a very good way of doing it. And it basically gives you the wherewithal to realize the ambition you have. Yeah. And how you tell the story. And um, obviously 9-11, as you mentioned, was a global story, affected lots of people all around the world. Um, in a more general sense, do you think that factual travels? Uh, totally. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but it's, it's the the story, um, and if it's an international story, uh, you know that has a resonance, uh, then that's much easier. And as uh, Generation Nine Eleven is clearly that um, in the film River we were talking about, that is universal. That's filmed. Uh, all over the world, and it is universal, and the, all the themes of that film are utterly universal stories. So a super domestic story 
it's harder um it's harder to get why would an american audience or a french audience or a german audience so by like unless you have a remarkable story um then which can burn through uh you need something that resonates in internationally you know so things i've done in the past like sherpa resonated because it was about um everest is a global iconic thing and this disaster was said so much about so many things so that worked um really well uh, so it's finding those universal themes but sometimes you can get a close up story one of the um the films that did very well in the shortlisted in the awards for theatrical documentary at both the academy awards and the bafta you know the, the that amazing film about the um the diver and the octopus which was just a brilliant close up natural history story and the film i thought was fantastic collective um about what in essence was corruption within the health service in romania who would ever imagine that corruption in the health service in romania uh, following people who died uh, uh, or had horrible burn injuries from this uh, fire at a club called collective who would ever thought that that would turn into be an oscar nominated documentary but that was the power of the story that got it onto the bafta nominations list and onto the um, uh, the academy nominations list so occasionally a cracking story can just punch through you know but you know i didn't watch it because i was fascinated in 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 as i say in the romanian in the bucharest health service was not a subject on my wish list of things to increase my knowledge about but my god the story was good and the film was good and do you think that's the, um this is a kind of continuing trend that the world is the world of factual tv is becoming more international yeah and i think the streamers are helping in that that you're you are looking um it's easier to do stories from around the world it's easier um to have non-english speaking in a totally global uh streaming network you know that old thing you had to have of everyone speaking english or sometimes being dubbed from their language into english that's sort of out of the window now and you know everyone's used to watching um with subtitles so i think uh, that's happening already with drama lots of my lockdown viewing you know a couple of things were french um one was um israeli arabic you know all subtitled but they were brilliant and the the, the subtitles were irrelevant um and i think that's going to happen increasingly with documentaries so you can go around the world and find the best stories and if they're in french or german or spanish or chinese whatever the language doesn't matter these days and i think that's um that's one of the good things that the streamers have done the the universality of what um, you can do it uh that way now and that's great it just means the, the world uh the world is available for the right story um it's interesting that you spoke about um oh sorry my just come back uh, oh yes um it's interesting you spoke about drama what room do you think for drama to mix into factual um i think about that a lot because a lot in my career i've done 
scripted drama, but always based on true stories. Then we did a lot, a bit less recently because we sort of the markets moved away from us, doing them as documentary, but with reenactment or, or, or doing pure documentary. And they've all sort of bled together and overlapped over each other. And, uh, and I think that's all a really healthy thing. And I also think it's fantastic that something like Chernobyl, which was totally scripted and utterly brilliant, um, you, you know, had all the content of a sort of specialist factual documentary going into micro detail about the background story to a, a disaster at a nuclear power plant. You know, again, it, that really showed that the story is all, the story is God. And there they had a fantastic story brilliantly told and they chose to do it scripted. Um, and you could have done it, you know, I remember we've looked at that story many times to do it as um, a theatrical documentary and, 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 and whatever. And um, it's just the way the market is now, you, you do, like you have choices, do you want to do a single or do you want to do um, a series? You have a choice, do you want to do scripted or hybrid or pure documentary? And, um, and there's much more flexibility um, around that now. John Smithson there, speaking with me, Ollie Hammett. That's all for this episode, but there'll be more from the podcast next week. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile, and on social media. Thanks for listening.